According, I'll start talking about the Bible. Uh, let us open up in prayer as we look to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we don't just come together in an educational sense here this morning. We come together as a people who have been transformed by your word to see something of the beauty of what Jesus has done to die our death on our behalf to take our punishment. And Lord, that very same word that convicted us to commit our lives to following you, may it transform us with that same power and impact this morning as we look at it. Not because of me, not because of my influence, but because of the compelling nature of the living and active word of God. So work in us, transform us to become um, more like your son Jesus, uh, that we might present you and honour and bring you glory in this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I was wondering through the idea, is there such thing as a good news, which is good news for everybody? Because there are some things which you think, this is really, really good news for that person. And then you think through another context and you think, but it's not actually good news for somebody else. Let me give you an example. We were just praying for rain again this morning during our prayer time. We've been praying for rain for quite a long period of time. Uh, Where I live out in Westbrook, I don't know if it's the nature of the soil, but it just had looked drier and deader out there than it did in lots of the rest of the other parts of Toowoomba. Now, a couple of weeks back on a Friday night, we got 65 to 80 millimetres of rain in a period of a couple of hours. And you think, that's got to be a good thing. An area that was so dry, so needy, praise God we got all of that rain. But also, a week before that, we got a little, quite a bit of rain... And what happened is the grass and things that were completely dead, after that rain, it didn't look like stuff that was springing up little green shoots. The whole town just looked like mud. And so when we, the following week, this 65 to 85 mils of rain, we live on the side of a hill, didn't only bring rain down the hill, it brought a whole lot of mud sliding down into our house. So what was good news for some wasn't necessarily always good news for others. Well, let me give you another scenario. Imagine someone receives quite an an abundant amount of money. Now, if that person who's receiving that money is someone who's doing it tough, someone you've got a lot of respect for their their integrity and character, you would say, that is a good thing. That person really deserved that. But how would you feel on another scenario where the recipient of that money was someone who was already exceedingly rich and they were exceedingly rich because they'd been deceptive and manipulative in their business dealings? It's the same good news. For one, you think it's good news and they deserved it. And for another, you think, I don't think that is good news and I don't think they deserved it. So when we think about the gospel, by what means do we say one person does or doesn't 
deserve the blessings of God's salvation? For whom is the gospel good news? As we've been going through the book of Acts, particularly in recent events, we've seen some rather odd abstractions. As Paul and Silas have gone out on their second missionary journey, there have been times when they've desired to take the gospel into Asia and it said, God prevented them. They wanted to go into Bithynia to preach the word of God and it said the spirit of Jesus stopped them from doing it. And we wrestled with the oddness of that phrase. So there were two times God blocked them towards something which was good and godly and then he opened the door and gave Paul a vision in the night saying, a man saying from Macedonia, come and help us. And between Paul and a number of other guys who were there with him, they concluded God is calling us to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And so off they went. In our previous sermon, now two weeks ago, we see that Paul encountered a a lady named Lydia who was meeting at a place of prayer. There was no synagogue in the area, so there was no visible, tangible signs in Philippi that people were seeking after God. And they were kind of looked at as outside, as being outside of the city gates. And she heard the things that Paul was saying and she responded in faith and she and her whole household were baptised. That's a good thing. And then there was this lady who had a was a slave girl who had an evil spirit that gave her ability to tell fortunes and she was making lots of money for her owners. And Paul cast that evil spirit out of her and set her free. But the owners who were not impressed, they dragged them before the councils, didn't bring together a case of, we don't have an income anymore. They said, these Jews... They're causing us Romans to do things that are not only wrong, but they are illegal. And they got all the crowds on board. Paul and Silas were beaten, placed in prison. And that's where we left them. They were put in jail in stocks for going to the place God had called them to, following the leading of God, and this is where they end up. So this morning we're going to look at the great non-escape in verses 25 and 34 and then a forced escape in verses 35 to 40. So the great non-escape, not the traditional movie title. Paul and Silas, they had trusted God's leading which led them to Macedonia after having the door closed on some other things which were good, God-honouring, You have Lydia and her household come to salvation. We see the slave girl freed from the oppression from this evil spirit. All good things. But in the middle of trusting and being obedient to God and his leading, Paul and Silas end up in jail. How would you feel about God if you put yourself in their shoes? God had actively blocked good godly pursuits led you somewhere else and as you are being faithful and obedient you end up in jail are you going to think favorably towards god 
Is your natural response to get angry with God? God, I was so faithful, why would I end up here? It's kind of a hypothetical question because it's not to say someone's going to say, well, when I was in Philippi and you know, I spoke to this lady by a river and then baptised her in a household and then there was this person who was heckling me who had an evil spirit and I cast them out and then I ended up in prison. But the general idea is something familiar to all of us of being obedient, faithful, following the leading and prompting of God, but still sometimes having that go pear-shaped, ending up in a situation or circumstances that are far from favourable. How would you think of God in the middle of that? Is your natural response to get angry? God, I was obedient, I was faithful. You should be blessing me. Why, Why would you allow anything bad to happen to your people? Look at Paul and Silas's response. They're not saying, God, things would have been heaps better in Asia and Bithynia, but you stopped that, but now look what's, what happened now we've gone where you've led us. No, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. In the middle of all that, wrongfully imprisoned, praying and singing hymns to God, praising God. Why? And at midnight. Why would you do that? Did that even be the type of thing that went through your mind? And I said, what would you do in a similar situation? Was your thoughts was, oh, my natural response would be to be praying to God and giving him thanks. Even at midnight, I'll be singing hymns and praise. Why would they do it? Is it like a magical solution? Somehow, if I'm seen to be publicly speaking favourably of God, that somehow he'll work to my favour. He'll come to the rescue. We'll talk him into acting. Is it something by way of, you know, just making the best of a, of a bad situation? If we keep a positive mindset, we'll get through this? I don't think it's either of those. I think there are two things we can presume that are happening here. Remember, one of these people is Paul. The same Paul who wrote to this church in Philippi later from another prison and says, rejoice in the Lord always. They've come to an understanding that despite external circumstances, our God is worth rejoicing in always. But I think the second aspect is not doubting God's leading, but Paul having a confidence that they were faithfully trusting God's leading and they were being faithfully obedient and therefore if this is where faithful obedience and trusting God's leading ends up, then regardless of what it looks like, this must be good. And in the middle of their midnight hymn festival, there's an earthquake. Now, if you were reading through Acts for the first time, you think, I know what's going to happen here. Because a number of times the apostles have ended up in prisons, then by miraculous intervention, things have happened that they've just been able to get out. And as this earthquake came, the prison doors open up, all of the shackles, things binding the prisoners, they were set loose. You think, here they are, 
God's got him out again. Now we don't know if people even left at all. But what we do know is Paul and Silas, who would have every reason to say, we don't deserve to be here, we've been wrongfully imprisoned, they could have gone, but they stay. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, he wasn't just like a paranoid kind of jailer. This was normal, common practice. If you were a Roman guard, and if the people whom you were guarding escaped, your life was taken. And so he's come to the conclusion, doors are open, people are unshackled, they're going to do the runner, my life's gone, better I do it than somebody else. Like it says, he was asleep, he's about to take his own life with a sword, until Paul intervenes. Now, verse 29, we see that it's dark. So Paul hasn't seen a sword come out. Whether he's just presumed that that's going to be the thinking or whether or not somehow God has revealed that to him, again, we don't know. What we do know is that in the middle of that time when this guy has pulled out a sword to take his own life, Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, we're uncertain whether the we are all here means every single person in the prison or just those who that jailer was particularly responsible for, Paul and those who were around him. Don't do it. We know the doors are open. We know we could do the runner. We would stay here and rather care for you as a human being created in the image of God even though you represent the institution that has us wrongfully imprisoned, don't do it, we're all here. Would you do that? You had every reason to be free, every opportunity to be free, to pursue comfort, freedom, yet you choose to stay and to care for someone who represents the authorities have put you in jail now we've got no indication there was a friendship between Paul and the jailer but we know that Paul would understand this jailer is precious this jailer like you and I and every other person in the world is made in the image of God and choosing between his personal comfort or caring for this person who was pondering taking his life he chose that he chose to care and love the jailer. It's not surprising the way the jailer is described. He comes with the lights and he comes running in and he comes down at the feet of Paul and Silas. Can you imagine how overwhelmed he would have been to know that in normal circumstances people are going to do the runner and his life is over. Yet they have cared for him enough. They have stayed and they've actually called out to share that care towards him. You think you're going to die, but the prisoners care for you. The same prisoners too, that he most likely has heard them praying and praising God in hymns and thanks throughout the night. 
And we see something of this appreciation. That this jailer brings Paul and Silas now outside of the prison. Remember, he was beforehand, he was going to kill himself for the idea that people might go outside of the prison. Now he has seen the care for him and he willingly takes Paul and Silas outside of the prison. Clearly he thinks there's something more that what Paul and Silas have that is far more important than his personal safety. Whether it's what he's heard in the songs and the prayers or whether somehow God has placed a deep conviction in his heart through other means, whatever it is, he's got the most important question on his lips. When he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what much I do to be saved. Now there are some who read through this and they're thinking, this guy is worried that his life's going to be taken for the events that have happened in the prison and he's saying, what do I do? to satisfy my bosses. But everything in the context, the fact that if he's led Paul and Silas out of the prison, which that in itself would rule out the idea of him being worried about his authorities, but even the answer he's given is totally rules that out. It's abundantly clear. His question is asking, what must I do to enter into salvation in Jesus Christ? What must I do to have peace with God like you have peace with God? Now for some, they're going to receive Paul's answer and go, that's a little bit simplistic. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And you think, come on, Paul, you know your theology better than that. Give it a bit more substance. Let's talk about sin and repentance. Well, Luke may be summarising the event. If you're struggling with it, you might also struggle with you go through the Gospels and you find sometimes Jesus too gives answers that are simplistic like this. Not always, but often does. If you want to be relieved a little bit, you might be more comfortable to see that then Paul and Silas spoke the word to him and his household so there was more substance provided. But what I like is the visual image that happened after that. Paul and Silas present the word to him and his family and then the jailer washes Paul and Silas's wounds. Then the jailer and again his whole household are baptised as they came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So the image of washing Paul and Silas's wounds or coming to faith and participating in baptism symbolising the, what the wounds of Jesus Christ have done to wash and purify this jailer. And so collectively the household is rejoicing. I, go, I think I talked about that in household baptism, that most occasions there is a description of something the entire household did, so they all rejoiced. And they share a meal together. I remember the first few times I read through this passage... I struggle to follow the flow. Because when you get to verse 35 through to 40, like you, you get the idea. The jailer's taken them out. He's taught him and his household they've had a meal together. But then it seems it's like they've just done like a, a, sneak, a sneak out for a gospel presentation, a baptism, food, and then back into the prison. Because the next morning, since the magistrates have decided that Paul and Silas have been through enough time to let him go 
And where are Paul and Silas to be found? In the prison. And word is sent that they can be released. That it's all good, you may now go. And you think Paul and Silas should be thankful. They've had their time. They've been told they should go. Praise the Lord. Thank you to answers for our prayers. Off we go. But when you see Paul's response, you think, did you really have to be that narky and antagonistic in response? Why don't you just go? Like Paul says to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. It's not exactly the first time that the apostles have been imprisoned or been mistreated. Why, why now make a big fuss about it? And I don't think it's so much about Paul and Silas. Remember, Paul and Silas have just brought the gospel to Philippi for the first time. And for their identification with the gospel, they have been grossly mistreated. I think Paul and Silas have a mindset of, we're going to see the gospel grow and expand in this place. And as those people, by the natural implication of being a follower of Jesus Christ, they themselves take on that mission to go make disciples of all nations... I don't want them to receive the same mistreatment we have. Like Paul's actually got a point. It was illegal for a Roman citizen to be beaten by rods like they were. It was illegal for a Roman citizen to be jailed without a proper trial like they were. I think Paul's setting down a standard. Guys, that is not how you're supposed to roll. That's not even in your own rules. And I think it was part of his care for those who would come after him, proclaiming the gospel there in Philippi. The result sounds not too different to things today, does it? They apologise, kind of suggested they go off quietly. So you've got the whole um, token apology and just, just keep it quiet, move along. And just as Paul has been doing throughout his ministry, he goes back, he returns to strengthen the existing believers, and then off he goes. So what? The question we raised in the introduction was, who is the gospel good news for? We even went that step further, it was like, who is deserving of the blessings of salvation? A number of you may have heard what was one of the common Jewish prayers, and it still exists in a Jewish prayer book today. I thank God that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. When you read through Acts chapter 16, we see the blessing of God going to a Gentile, the Roman jailer, a woman, Lydia, and a slave, the slave girl. God's blessing going to all three of those in one chapter in one city. This is more than just an interesting correlation. I think, wow, I can't wait to pull this out at a trivia night. This shows us something of the character of God. 
The fact that that prayer existed in the Jewish prayer book says that these were the three groups that they deemed to be most unworthy and most despised. Yet in God's leading Paul and Silas to Macedonia and to Philippi specifically, these are the three areas in which he focused on. I'm sure lots of other things happened that Luke reveals happened in Philippi. Our God is not any more or less favourable towards any demographic. Now, I'm sure none of us have a similar prayer in our prayer journals where I say, I thank God I'm not this, this and this, and a New South Wales supporter at State of Origin, or a Collingwood supporter for AFL. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) It's there. Because no Christian should be racist. No Christian should be sexist. No Christian should be looking down on any area or any demographic. All created in the image of God. And I would presume that in our people gathered here today, that's, that's not true of any of us. But if it is, in any area, that's something we should repent of. It's one way in which we fail to demonstrate the character of our God. But I want to probe that a little bit further. Is it possible that anybody you know that you might actually feel annoyed if God was to bless them with salvation? Is there someone maybe in your workplace who just really grates with you that if if they became a Christian entered in the wonderful blessings of God that you'd actually kind of feel a bit of resentment. Or someone who's just so offensive or someone whose moral compass or ethical compass is so far from yours that you would annoy you if they came to experience God's blessing and salvation. Or maybe it's a particular crime that you find so offensive that's in someone's history and their mindset's still that way. You think, I hope God never saves that person. Would you think that? You shouldn't. Would you deem it unfair if God blessed or saved such people? Because the Bible I've got, which incidentally has got the same content as yours, makes it pretty clear that every single human ever born has naturally dishonoured God, rebelled against him, said thanks for this lovely world you've made, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. None of us are deserving. None of us are worthy of receiving his blessings. I can tell you with absolute certainty, I do not deserve God's blessings and God's salvation. I didn't back in 1996. I don't today. Now when Paul says to the Galatians, we are saved by grace... Grace means to receive something you don't deserve. So by nature, being undeserving is a criteria. And luckily we all meet that criteria. But I'll plead with you, never, ever look upon any person or any people group and think they do not deserve God's blessings of salvation. 
and certainly never do it as they don't deserve it and kind of from the sense of, but I did. You did not. And likewise, as you go out, carrying on the tasks we've been entrusted with to make disciples of all nations, don't write someone off and think, not going to that person, not going to this group. Because when we look through, even through Acts 16, with the exception of Lydia, who was there um, seeking God in a Jewish sort of sense, with the other two, there was not even the slightest remote sign that they were seeking out or, or responsive to the things of God. The grace of God just came to them. And they were transformed. You don't need to wait for someone to get to a certain closeness level of holiness until they're ready. We're all broken. God comes to us in our brokenness. Christ came to save sinners. So if God lays a burden on your heart towards someone, you think, no, not that person, no way. Don't just think that's a a foolish thought that you once had. If you honestly believe that God may have led you that direction, go there in a confidence in the power of the gospel, not limited by what you think God may or may not do. And pray, God, help me to see this whole world is broken. But broken in a way that is never beyond your saving. But what about if you don't yet know Jesus? What if you're hearing these things about Jesus, you're hearing about these things about a good news of an offer of salvation, and you think, that sounds pretty good. But I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I deserve it. If, if the thought that someone who I've never met, whom I've actually dishonoured for all my life, would come into this world to die on a cross to take our death penalty we deserved, and you think, I don't don't deserve that. There is nobody who is so unworthy that God cannot and will not accept. There is no sin that puts the line through the sand and says, God says, no, no chance. And nor is there any state that we can be in where we think, okay, God's going to take a bit more time. God came to save sinners where they are. So if you feel any sense of God calling you to turn to him, if you see something beautiful in this offer of salvation that someone would die and lay down their life for you, that the consequences of your rejection are dealt with, that you have peace with God, that God's spirit would dwell within you, that he would value so much that he would even use you to share that good news with others? If you feel that, turn to him knowing that he will and can save. Commit your life to him. Don't think I'm unworthy, I, I need to feel guilty. As you see the tension between where you're at and the beauty of this salvation that's being offered, don't let that push to guilt and shame. Push that to see the overwhelming sense of God's love and grace and turn to him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that 
it is good to be reminded that we were not deserving. Lord, we needed you to have any chance, any hope in this life and beyond. And only through you do we have hope in this life and beyond. It's not a hope that we should want to keep for ourselves, nor is it a hope that it's for people who meet a certain selection criteria. The only criteria we've seen this morning is that we are undeserving, that we have rebelled against the one who has lovingly created us and given us everything, that by nature we just want to decide how we do everything and have turned from the one who is our true ruler, who's a loving and a good ruler who desires our best. Thank you that you love us enough to meet us in the deepness and the darkness of our worst days and that you are able to save from any situation. Thank you for your grace and mercy to not only to save, but to continue to mature and use those whom you save out of all different circumstances. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.